Baker, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Mission Church, and so we want to thank you guys for gathering with us here on this Lord's Day. Uh, if you are new to Mission, welcome. Thank you guys for gathering with us. Um, I would encourage you that if you have any questions or if we can serve you in any way, if we can help um, to point you towards Jesus or answer any questions that you have, uh, please come see myself or uh, Pastor Justin, who is just up here, or Pastor Todd. You'll get to meet him and know him as well. We would love to point you and give you some advice or to point you towards Jesus or answer any questions that you may have about our church. Now, something that you need to understand about Mission Church is that we love Jesus, all right? We love Jesus. It truly is all about Jesus. And because we love Jesus so much that, that we, we love his word, we believe that from Genesis to Revelation, that it truly is the infallible. That means it's the perfect word of God. That as the words are written, there's not a, a capital letter, a comma, a, a dot or tittle, the Bible would say, uh, that is not the inspired word of God. And you're at a place that believes that and are trying by his grace and his mercy to be obedient to that word in every way, shape, form, and fashion. And so if you don't have a Bible, I'm going to encourage you, one, to get that Bible that is out in front of you, probably somewhere located on your aisle. If you do not own a Bible, uh, then please take that Bible as a gift from Mission Church to you. And then also, as Pastor Justin uh, spoke about earlier, is that out on the front counter, if you've not gotten one, I think we have just a few of these left, uh, but we're working through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the letter called 1 Corinthians, and uh, this little Bible journal here allows you to have just 1 Corinthians within a single-handed form, but also has spots for you to, like it was mentioned, to take notes and hopefully discuss those in what we call missional communities. Those are our small groups that meet uh, throughout the week. And so if you'd like to be a part of a missional community, we have uh, several of those meeting throughout the city, and we'd love to get you plugged into one of those small groups and to, to eat a meal together, to pray with each other, and, and that's where the real community of Mission Church uh, begins to grow and uh, to uh, point each other towards the person and the work of Jesus. And so, uh, along those lines is, I would encourage you to turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, uh, we're currently in chapter 5 of uh, that letter. And follow along with me as I read a few verses here uh, in reflection of what we'll be preaching and teaching on here today. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the word of the Lord says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though I absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is 
the word of the Lord. Again, if you are new here to mission, is that we preach through books of the Bible. And in preaching through the books of the Bible, it focuses us and and forces us uh, to preach through topics that I'm just going to let you in on some preacher talk here that we would not talk about. Um, We would just talk about, you know, joy and, and happiness and love and butterflies and the return of Jesus, right? We would skip over the hard topics, and, and it's really easy to do that. It's become very popular in American Christianity, and yet we feel that the best way to pr- pursue Jesus, to make disciples, and to teach people the actual Word of God is to preach through letters of the Bible, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, which forces us as pastors and as followers of Jesus um, to come across and be really confronted with extremely difficult passages. Well, today, um, really beginning last week and today and over the course of the next several weeks, if not months, uh, we're going to encounter several of those passages. And I, and I want you to know that it's okay to feel a little uncomfortable because the text, if read correctly and preached correctly, should make us uncomfortable. I also recognize that all of us are on a journey in this room. Uh, There are some of you that have been following Jesus longer than I've been alive. There are others of you that are in the room that are are non-Christians, that you do not believe that Jesus is Christ, that he is not the Lord, that his word is not true. And so I understand that, and I understand that there are different varyings of people in between, that again, like there are non-believers, and there, man, there are people who've been believers for years and years and years. Uh, there are people who think that they're believers, and they're not believers, and there are immature Christians, and yet there are mature Christians who have gathered. And so it's going to be very important for every one of us, whether you're new to Christianity and learning about Jesus and the Bible, or if you've been around it for years and years, the topic that we're going to cover today and next week may be very new to you no matter where you are on that spectrum because for the last hundred years it has pretty much been ignored in most churches specifically in America and that is the issue of how do we handle a person within our church within our membership who refuses Um, to submit to Jesus, submit to his word, submit to the elders and the members of the church as they give care for their soul. They continue to willfully disobey Jesus and his word and the wise counsel of the church before them. And so Paul addresses this. Now, if you don't know who Paul is, let me introduce you. He's my friend. Paul lived several thousand years ago, and yet he's been a traveling companion of mine since I was about 19 years of age when Jesus saved me. He's been one of my closest friends, and I look forward to meeting him one day. But Paul was this guy who was anti-Jesus and anti-Christianity. And yet Jesus saved him. And when Jesus saved Paul, it radically changed his life. So some of you who are here today, maybe you're thinking, man, I am totally unsavable. I am so far gone from Jesus that he cannot save you. Well, again, let me introduce you to my friend Paul, who used to persecute Christians, possibly even killed them himself. We don't know, but he was at least persecuting them and having them stoned to death for their beliefs in Jesus and his word. And yet, in the loving kindness of 
of Jesus, he reaches down and saves what appears to be the most unsavable person on the planet. Well, Jesus, as he continues to grow this man named Paul, guess what Paul begins to do? As he begins to make disciples, he begins going all over the place in ancient times, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and calling people to come to Jesus and to be saved. He was calling them to repentance and to faith. And so we see that in this story that Paul is writing to this place called Corinthians. It was actually an ancient city called Corinth. In the center of the city was this huge mountain, and on top of this mountain was this temple uh, to the the Greek goddess Aphrodite. She was the the goddess of love and sexuality and all these sorts of things. And as part of their daily lives, they worshipped her in in a large volume of immoral activity, and we'll cover that in more detail. It's kind of a weird thing to say in a few weeks, but we are going to go in more explanation of that here in a few weeks as we discuss that because that's where our letter leads us. So Paul, this Christian, essentially steps in as a minority. There aren't Christians there. He steps into the city, this bustling city that is filled with wealth and immorality. Like if you weren't living in Corinth and you really wanted to get somebody, and I, I apologize, parents, and I, uh, um, but when, when I was growing up, you ever had people that you went to school with that you didn't, like you knew things that they did, right? And we came up with terms for them, Right? Um, I'll use one that hopefully doesn't get me in trouble. Like, that's a skank. Right? Everybody got that? Well, during this time, um, to call someone outside of Corinthians, oh, man, you're acting like a Corinthian, was essentially to call them a skank. All right? That's how derogatory, um, to the nth degree, Uh, because of all of the immorality that was happening within this city. And so Paul, filled with Jesus, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, he goes to this crazy pagan, you know, Las Vegas on steroid city, steps into that place, and pretty much goes, starts going to person in person, like, do you know Jesus? Do you have a relationship with Jesus? He's preaching the gospel, and guess what happens? Out of all those people, Jesus begins to save people. And a church is born, filled with people who were once the Corinthians, but now are lovers of Jesus. Paul spends about 18 months with these folks, training them, teaching them the word of God, pointing them towards Jesus, teaching them about Christ and the words of Christ. And then after about 18 months, he goes to plant another church, but he still keeps ties and still wants to know what's happening inside of this church that is in Corinth. So people write him letters, they come visit him, and they give him updates because he's in now the city of Ephesus, and they give him updates. And then based on those updates, Paul, because this is pre-computer or text message, right? So he, he gets out the parchment, or he has a secretary write out for him as he uh, gives speeches to send back to these cities to help continue and encourage them in their relationship with the Lord. And that's how we got this thing called 1 Corinthians. All right? So it's a letter from this guy named Paul to these people that are living in Corinthians, this church that is in Corinth, right? And he's addressing a lot of issues there. Now, you got to get this. Paul loves these people. He loves them. He planted the church. He pointed them towards Jesus. They have a special place in his heart, 
right? And yet, there are major issues that are taking place within this church. This church is essentially proclaiming, we love Jesus, and yet they are acting and living like the rest of the city of Corinth. They have gone wild, per se. And so Paul is addressing them in love to address the divisions that are happening in the, in the church. People are arguing over all sorts of things. There's immorality that's happening within the church. And so Paul is writing this letter in order to, to cause them, and hopefully um, as they have drifted toward looking like the world and, and engaging in wild craziness and acting like the world, that it, that's what we call the drift. That's why we're calling this fight the drift, is that they have drifted away from where God wants them to be. And so Paul is writing them in hopes to bring them back in alignment with Jesus. And we come to this text today as he's been addressing their arrogance. They will not listen. These are our adults. They've been following Jesus, yet they will not listen. They have become hard-hearted, the Bible will say. The Bible would say and describe people like this, that they're hard of hearing, that the truth just seems to fall off of them uh, like a, a stone upon a shield. They will not listen. And Paul addresses their arrogance in fear that their arrogance will ultimately reveal that they do not have a relationship with Jesus. All right? So, these issues are rooted in this arrogance. And so what does Paul do at first? Well, he tells us what the issue is. And listen to the issue that's taking place. Again, in your Bibles, chapter 5, 1 Corinthians, let's look at verse 1 again. It says, it is actually reported there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. All right? It sounds like something totally off of like TLC or Real Housewives, something, 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 right? This is one of them Love Island situations. And imagine, who is Paul speaking to? He's speaking to the church. And so the first thing, if you're taking notes, the first thing that Paul does is, is that he exposes the sin with, uh, of this church member, right? Because this letter is going to be read to everyone, but, but he exposes it. He's been given a report, and what is that report? That means that it's, it's common knowledge among the church that someone, there's a man in the church that is shacking up with his dad's mama. I'm, that's weird. That's his grandmother. His dad's wife. All right? That's a double dose of, like, bad. All right? <laughs> okay? It's okay to laugh here, too, okay? Because um, you're either laughing at me or I'm laughing at you. All right? So it, it works out. So there's just this situation this man has gotten himself into. That there is a path. And this pattern of life is that this man is sleeping with, is living with his dad's wife. Now, the term sexual immorality here is the word pornania. And I'm going to go into the, the depths of that here in a few weeks because he mentions it here, but it's not the main uh, problem that is happening within this church. Notice, but we'll get there in just a second. There's this member that is in this church that is engaging in some sort of sexual immorality living with his, his stepmom. 
Now, we don't know where the dad is. We don't know where the father is. He could be dead, or even more scandalous, imagine that your son runs off with his stepmom. Um, during this culture and time, you have to understand something as well, is that men typically married women who were way younger than they were. So it's possible that even this son and his stepmom were actually more close to age. All right? But for whatever instance, whatever has happened, and again, to make it more scandalous, if he's still alive, <laughs> how's Christmas going for you? This woman appears not to be a believer. Why? Well, look at the text. She isn't mentioned, which is another whole sermon and problem. So this man is engaged, living with, engaging in sexual immorality with his father's wife. And you need to understand something. And I know you're saying, well, they are not blood, right? It's his stepmom. It's not his real mom. Well, you need to understand something within culture, and I would say even with what should be our culture, is that if adoption has taken place, if there is a situation of step-parent, then that is equivalent to the, the DNA relationship. That should not be broken. And yet it's, it's being broken here. Inside of the Old Testament, in the Leviticus chapter 18, this is completely illegal. It tells us in the Bible that you should not be engaging in any sort of sexual activity with someone who is a relative. It's an incest is what's taking place here. But what's crazy about this is that even within Corinth, which is a Roman city that is prideful on engaging, if you dream it up, you can experience in Corinth with whomever and as many evers as you want to, that all of those things are actually acceptable, except incest. Uh, Roman historians tell us that even amongst Roman law, you've had pretty much free permission, even in your marriage, to step out of that marriage, to engage with temple prostitution, um, you know, to have uh, concubines and all these sorts of things. But the person that you're engaging with these things with cannot be your relative. So that's why Paul says in this passage, man, you guys are doing something within the church that even the Romans think is disgusting. I mean, think about that, that there's a level like that, even the people who go to Vegas, you know, not to just cha-ching on the machines, but like there's a layer even for them that they find that is even disgusting, that this is a line that we will not cross, and yet there's a man who claims to be a follower of Jesus, he's a member of the church, and this is what he is engaging in. The language here paints a picture of that it's ongoing, sinful relationship. We will often talk about this in Christianity as this person is living in sin. This isn't a one-off mistake. This isn't a, this isn't a uh, I, I, man, I, I told a lie, I'm sorry. This isn't even, oh, man, I was, I was on the computer. I came across something I shouldn't have looked at. And, man, I'm sorry, I need to, to reconcile, I need to repent. No, this is a pattern in this man's life, and everybody in the church knows that this is going on. This is a very serious situation. However, 
Before you're sitting there and you're thinking, man, this actually has absolutely nothing to do with me because I'm not engaged in an incestuous, uh, sexual immoral relationship with any of my relatives. But to look at it and to only focus on that is to miss the purpose of the text and its overarching scope. And that'll be explained here in just a moment. What does Paul focus on? Notice he quickly jumps from that and we're all like, I don't know if I want to know the details or not. But Paul doesn't spend much time talking about that relationship, does he? But rather, what does he skip to quickly? Let's go to verse 2. This is happening. Then verse 2. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Notice here that Paul is upset about the man's activity. He's not making light of this pattern inside of this man's life. But what Paul is more concerned about is he's concerned that amongst the church members, they all know this within that church family, and yet no one is doing anything about it. This sin is happening, but there is as possibly a greater sin, and it's not just in this man's life, but it's in the life of the community as they're watching this situation take place, and yet no one is addressing it. Paul calls them arrogant. Arrogant. He, he addresses the sin, but then he's addressing the sin of this church family. He begins to speak directly to the congregation, and he says, you are arrogant. Now, I spent a lot of time in last week's sermon talking about what it means in the Greek language to be arrogant. It means to be inflated, puffed up. I use the illustration of what we would often say is that, you know, you're big-headed, that this doesn't really apply to you. Again, that you're hard-hearted or that, that you will not listen to reason. That, that arrogance causes one to be deaf of hearing, and arrogance and pride cause us as well uh, to be blind to our own sin, that we can't even reconcile that when people come against us and they're like, brother, sister, man, this is not godly. You are, 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 are going away. You're drifting away from the person of Jesus. Is that, that people who are arrogant have heart in their heart is that they can't even listen. They can't even hear the reason and the wisdom of the scripture as they gently and lovingly speak it to the person who is in sin. So not only is this man arrogant, because he believes that he can love Jesus and be a follower of Jesus and yet live in a lifestyle that is deceitful and contrary to what God would have. But also, the church body is arrogant because it will not address the issue of the immoral man that is taking place. Now, why don't they address it? Well, there's probably two reasons, or one of two, or both. These two reasons, again, the first point was exposing the sin of the church member. The second point was exposing the sin of the church membership. Within that, why aren't they addressing it? We hate having hard conversations, don't we? We hate addressing these sorts of issues, or any issue, really, in anybody's life. And it appears as though that they are not addressing the issue of the immoral church member um, in their arrogance, maybe number one is, is because of what they believe to be his freedom in Christ. That man, once Jesus saves you, I mean, the brother's saved, right? 
And if we're all saved, don't we have freedom in Christ? I mean, we can't save ourselves through, through good works. We can only save ourselves through grace. And so if you've been saved by grace, shall we keep on sinning so grace may abound? And this church would proclaim from its mountaintops, of course, who am I to judge? Maybe along with this idea of freedom in Christ, which is, again, that's a, a wrong view of freedom in Christ, Maybe it's that they, they've become hip and cool and tolerant. That there's this sin going on, but man, we're, we're, we're the cool church. We're the relevant church. Man, we're the church that welcomes anybody, and man, you can just do whatever you want to once you come to Christ, because man, He's got you, and Man, it's all covered under blood, so let's just live like however, and just one day when Jesus comes back or calls us home through death, we'll just fall on the safety net of his grace, so it doesn't really matter how you or I live. Maybe along with that freedom in Christ and tolerance section is that, you know, the Bible says that, but culture We've evolved. We've gotten wiser. We've become more open. I mean, love is love. Who are we to judge that he loves his mama in that way? But he does. All love is the same. It's love. Tolerant. Freedom. Makes for very cheap grace. Or, which I think is more prevalent um, for, for maybe us here at Mission, is in our arrogance, we've become silent. Like, if we just ignore it, if we just ignore it, it'll go away. We can just sweep this under the rug, right? Let's just... Let's just pretend like it's not going on. Let's just pretend that so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such are just... Maybe if they just keep coming to church or keep coming to MC, they'll finally hear something that God will use in their life and make it click, and they'll come back to Jesus. Right? So they become silent. Let's just, let's just look the other way. Why do we do that? Man, we're really scared of each other. It's called fear of man. Again, maybe it's that, who am I? We can be, become very much consumed and unwilling to do the hard things. Because it's much easier just to go about business as usual, isn't it? So there's a serious problem and yet, 
notice what, what Paul says that they should be doing. Instead of being arrogant, the Bible tells us that Paul is telling the church people is that they see that this sin is happening, this pattern. I'm not saying that you and I, if we are followers of Jesus, please do not be the sin police. This is not walking around at every time that we see someone do something wrong or say a naughty word or, or this and that, is that we jump right on every opportunity. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter that love covers a multitude of sins. There are certain things, like, lovingly, when I say this to you, it's like, you just don't need to make that a big deal. It's not that it's right, but we need to be very gracious in, in the general thing when we see people slip up. But this brother isn't slipping up. This is wrongful, willful disobedience. Jesus, the Bible, the Scripture, the Holy Word of God says we should be living like this, and there is this pattern, this, there is this habitual living out that I am going to live contrary to what Jesus says, to what the Bible says, and what wise counsel for my pastors and church members are telling me how we are supposed to live a according to God's word. So not sin police. All right? You hear somebody stub their toe and say a naughty word, please don't feel like you have to, to go into this entire extravaganza. They, they probably know they shouldn't have said that. But rather, there does come a point in time, again, when we see this pattern, that we cannot be arrogant. We can't just accept this. We can't be puffed up. We can't just say, this is freedom in Christ, or, man, we're tolerance. I mean, there, there are churches even within our town that, I mean, they pride themselves that any time that someone has an issue and they love to get on Facebook or whatever and bought, broadcast it, man, you'll just see church after church after church, person that goes here, you should leave there, come to our church. We welcome everybody. And the thing is, that should be true of all churches, that they welcome everybody. But the welcoming of everybody doesn't mean that the expectation is that you get to continue to live however you want to live, because that is not how grace works. When Jesus saves you, slowly, he changes your life. He changes your life. And so in this text, we, we see that, that he says, instead of being arrogant, is that you should be mourning. What is this posture that they, know, that they have? Notice, as they are going to address this man, it's not that they're going with their pitchforks, right? Show up at their house with a bunch of pitchforks and torches. They're not on a witch hunt. No, it is a posture of mourning. It is grieving and mourning over sin, not arrogance, it's not vindictive. Like, man, we're out to get this brother. We're out to get this sister. Man, we'll show them. The Bible says that we actually need to be very careful so that when we go to address, that we don't fall into sin. That we need to check our heart. Check our heart before we go do this. That it's done with compassion and mercy as you, you go to address the seriousness of the sin that is taking place in this life. The Holy Spirit leads us to grieve. It's a picture of going to this brother 
the sister in tears. It's being remorseful. It, 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 is, it is looking at their sin. It is exposing their sin. And in that, there is no pride or, or, or permission to, to live in such a way. But, but you and I, as a church member and as a church collectively, are weeping, begging, pleading with the person and pleading with the Lord to work in this person's life. Throughout church history, this is called church discipline. Now, you need to understand something, that within a church, that church discipline is always taking place. Um, Church discipline is taking place right now as we speak. Typically and historically, church discipline has been divided up into kind of two categories. There's the formative category, and then there's the corrective category. Church discipline Think about self-discipline. Think about education. It's about being disciplined in education, disciplined in history, or disciplined in math or spelling, which I never caught on to. But they tell me that that's achievable. And so when we think about church discipline, you've got to think about it in two different categories. You think about it in a a formative category and then a corrective category. uh, Church discipline is taking place right now or in private conversations that you and I have or at an MC when we sit down together to teach each other the word. That's formative discipline. It's formative education. If you're a parent in the room, you're doing this constantly, right? Right? You're teaching your kid how to brush their teeth, how to use the potty, how to make their bed, how to fold towels the way that mama wants them, all those sorts of things. That's formative discipline, right? We've got to be disciplined to do this. You ever seen your kids who's not been disciplined to do that to their room or smelt their breath? Right? Formative discipline is a good thing. But also within parenting and within the church, there is corrective discipline. There is a corrective component to this. This is where an individual in the church or a group within the church or the entire church body um, discipline a person. And again, this is constantly happening. Go back to your home as illustration just for a moment. Is that when you see an issue, the punishment should fit the crime. Like if you're loving and caring towards your kid, then you should discipline them right? Now, please understand there's a major difference between discipline and punishment slash abuse. We should not be punishing to the point of abuse. That is wrong. You should go to jail, probably, depending on the case. But we should discipline. Now, if discipline is always corrective, you're going to have a little rebellious figure on your hand. But if you are formative and when the punishment fits the crime, that you are corrective in your home, right? That there are varying degrees of you making mistakes, right? If you, if you spill your drink at the dinner table, guess what? That is, that is not worthy of any kind of corrective punishment. You messed up, right? Right? Now, you sneak out of the house or... Continue to disobey your parents. There, there may be a form of discipline that is corrective, right? And the punishment, excuse me, the discipline should always fit that issue. Well, similarly, that within the church, there can be corrective conversations as well that are always happening. 
People were constantly, as one of your pastors, are trying to steer me back towards Jesus and correct my problems. They love to do that, actually. And it's okay. I welcome it if it's in Christ and with your Bible open. So there's corrective conversation also coming along. But again, notice the severity. Don't just focus on sexual immorality. Notice that there is this pattern of this life that this man within the church is living like the world. Like we can't tell any difference in the way that he's living out his relationship and the way that the world lives out their relationship. And if this is a constant pattern as you've gone to him and or her and you've asked over and over and over again, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, come back to Jesus, then there comes a point in time where the church must say, as the Bible says in verse 2, let him who has done this be removed from among you. This is pretty much practiced in almost every Christian faithful church until about the Civil War. In the last hundred years, and I would argue, or I, I would be interested to see this, if we could do a hand survey this morning, we won't, but if we could do a hand survey this morning, that you have ever heard of a church, because there are very few of us, who would practice corrective discipline to the point where you can be removed from the protection of that church family. Um, I don't have very many Twitter followers, and Twitter pretty much just makes me mad every time I look at it anyway. But this last week, in preparation for this sermon, um, I put out a Twitter survey. And of my, like, 400 followers, I had two responses. That tells you how popular I am. Of those two responses, I asked the question, does your church practice church discipline to the point where it would remove someone in a form of discipline from the membership of the church? I got two responses, all right? One said yes, one said no. So I don't know what that tells you, but it didn't help me at all, except maybe in a greater scale is the reality is that most churches don't do it. If I was to ask you, if you've gone to any other church besides Mission Church, have they practiced to the point of corrective discipline in a person's life where they can be removed from a church? And I guarantee you, most of you would say no. You'd say no. Now, if you're new to Christianity here, or if you've been a Christian for years and years and years, and you've never heard this, what a travesty. And also, you need to understand, where does Paul get this? Is Paul just angry? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the camel that day, or whatever it was, that he, he, he was just really upset, or he just didn't like this guy, and he was upset at this guy, and so, man, he just wanted that dude booted out of the church. I mean, what he's doing is nasty. We need him out. Notice, he says... Let the man who has done this be removed from you. In verse 5, notice what he says. And this is going to sound extremely harsh if we don't understand the power of Jesus, his text, and his love for the church. In verse 5, he says, You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. I mean, notice. All right. Tell him to deliver him over to Satan. This is extremely serious. The persistent pattern, consistent sin in a man 
who professes to have a relationship with Jesus, but is following the pattern of the world, is that if he will not come back to Jesus, then the church is to remove him from membership, remove him from fellowship, and turn him over to Satan. Well, what does it mean to be turned over to Satan? Well, let me tell you this. You don't want it to happen to you. But this is what it means. It could mean two things. It could literally mean that they're going to turn him over and that the Lord is going to strike him dead before he causes any more pain, suffering, and havoc. This actually happens in the Bible. Several occasions. One specifically inside the New Testament, inside the book of Acts, where a couple, they lie to the church. And the Lord causes death upon them. Now, it, it could mean death, but in most cases, what it means to be turned over to Satan is who is the ruler and the reigner of the world? It's Satan. See, if you're not a follower of Jesus, did you know that you're the son or daughter of Satan himself? If you're not a follower of Jesus in here, that your Lord, your God, is actually sin, Satan, and death. And that is how the world outside of Christ lives and acts. They're worshiping and following. And you don't have to, you know, have a, a virgin in your basin to crucify or a goat or anything like that to be a Satan worshiper. Most Satan worshipers are not people like that. There are all the people who do not have a relationship with Jesus. It's extremely serious. And Paul is saying, you need to take this man and you need to send him out into the world. If he wants to live like the world, then may he be removed from that church. This is a serious process. But where does Paul get it? Paul gets this from Jesus himself. Let's read from Matthew chapter 18. says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not, one or two others along with you, that every charge is the evidence of three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you tax collector. That, those are people who do not follow Jesus. So let him act like that's what he wants. If that's what she wants, then turn them over to what they're desiring. But they've got to be removed. Truly I say to you, wherever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the... Two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among you. You know, we love to use that passage of Scripture. Maybe you've heard it before three or more gathered, man, we're having church. That is totally taking that scripture out of context. The context is, is where two or three are gathered in his name to administer church discipline, corrective church discipline, to the removal of somebody from the church. Get this, Jesus is pleased and he is present. We get this from Jesus. What do we get? We get a four-step process. All right? So, very quickly, 
If you're a Christian in the room, you're a member of Mission Church, someone sins against you or someone is participating in sin, you witness it, and again, love covers a multitude of sin, but you continue to see a pattern in someone's life, then the Bible says you don't come to Pastor Eric the, the, the Bible doesn't say that you go to Pastor Justin or Pastor Todd or that you get on a text thread and to begin to talk to people and to gather troops through text messaging or through phone calls or through conversations in order to get people on your side and, 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 or just ignore it. That's not what Jesus says to do. Rather, if you see a pattern of sin where someone continues to sin against you, or if they're participating in some sort of pattern of sin that is contrary to God's word, then the Bible tells you, and he tells me, that the first thing that you need to do is that you, before you talk to everybody, you should probably pray, and then you go directly to that person, and you have a verbal conversation with them. You don't try to solve your problems through emails and text messages. You can't read tone in text. But the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us, that if you have a problem, that you go to that person. You go to them. You expose the sin that they have done against you, or you expose this pattern of sin, and what do you do? In love, in mercy, and in a spirit, and pleading, you ask that person to please turn from that sin and come back to Jesus. If they're responsive to that, Man, they, they, they are broken by their sin. Um, they ask for forgiveness. They want to stop. They want help, right? And so there's some time that elapse. But they keep hurting you, or they keep in this pattern of sin. Well, what does Jesus tell us to do? Then he tells us to go gather some other people and bring them to that meeting, as you lovingly confront them again. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You're running toward a ditch. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. You're running toward a spiritual cliff. You're you're hurting yourself. You're living in a pattern that is contrary to Jesus, to his word. Please come back to Jesus. Please stop what you're doing and come back to Jesus. You do this in the power of the witnesses. Now, at this point, I would add too, because I think biblical wisdom points to this, is that if it comes to what we call stage two, where you need to involve other people, is that that the pastors, the elders of the church who are set up to protect you, should probably be at least one of those, or should be aware that this is taking place. But what if the person still won't repent and come back to Jesus? Well, what does Jesus tell us to do? Jesus tells us that when we're assembled, that would mean the church membership that we tell everyone in the church the sin. And then what does the church do? We get on our hands and knees. We mourn. We plead with Jesus. We plead with the Holy Spirit to work in that man's life to work in that woman's life. Please, Jesus, bring them back to you. Please, Jesus, help them to repent. Please, Jesus, help them to turn in faith. And we as a church body then leave there, and the church body, no matter if it's 10 people or 10,000 people, if they know you, should be knocking on your door, emailing you, calling you, and will not leave you alone. But they're not asking about the weather or where you're going on vacation, but they're calling you, speaking to you, and begging you to come back to Jesus, to fight the Jif brother 
brother, to fight the drift sister, and to come back to Jesus. This is extremely loving. It is what even people uh, in the non-Christian world, right? We love to call this an intervention. So don't freak out if you're here today and you're not a Christian because non-Christians do this sort of pattern as well. But what we have that they don't have is the hope of Jesus that these people are going to be changed. And let me just tell you, some of the hardest moments in the last 10, well, nine and a half years of Planting Mission Church has been in this area of corrective discipline and, and cards on the table. We have had people in patterns of sin that we've had to address with weeping, with begging, with pleading for them to repent, and they have never done so. And they've never done so. And yet likewise, we've had a situation, an individual, that there was this pattern of addiction in several different areas. Confronted, 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 pleaded with, we love you, we love you, we love you, and we love you. And it wasn't because of anything that we said or did. But God showed him and us mercy and grace in that moment as we rejoiced as he came home. But if they don't repent, the Bible tells us, man, you've got to turn them over. And that's ultimately what they want. Now, the church isn't saying here, and Jesus isn't saying that you know whether they're going to heaven or hell. But church membership is extremely important. If you're a Christian, you are supposed to be a member of a local church. In membership, what do we do? We're saying to the best of our ability, this brother or sister, by their profession and also the pattern of their lives, from the best that we can tell, only Jesus knows their heart, but from the best that we can tell, this person loves Jesus and they're following Jesus. And so we welcome those people into membership. And in membership, what do we have? Protection, care, love, correction, formation. You're welcome in the family. You do it toward us as the pastors. We do it toward you. You do it in missional communities. uh, communities It's that we love and we care for each other under the umbrella and the protection of church membership. But what Jesus is saying here and what Paul is saying to us is there comes a point in pattern inside of a person's life as they continue to rebel against Jesus, his word, and his church that you must turn them over. That meaning this, we no longer know. We cannot tell that they are a Christian any longer. And I'm not telling you that because a true Christian, guess what? You can't lose your salvation what he's saying here and establishing within the church is that if there is a person that you have to get to the point where you have to remove them and turn them over to the ways of the world, then if they truly are a Christian, guess what they're going to do? They're going to repent. They're going to come back to Jesus. They're going to come back to the church. They're going to be remorseful, and they're going to fight and make war against the sin in their lives. But if you turn them over to the world, and they truly weren't a Christian, they were just faking it until they made it, then that will be revealed as well. This isn't one of those deals where you can just go down to the church down the road and sneak in and sneak out and hope that the big church doesn't notice you. You know why? Because every church should be practicing this. 
as Paul says, I'm teaching these things to anyone and everyone. Now, to close this out, why mission must be faithful in church discipline? Why should we at Mission Church be faithful in church discipline? Number one is that it honors God and His holiness. It honors God and His holiness. A few weeks ago, we talked about, and Pastor Justin preached on the faithfulness of the pastors, of the apostles, but also as us, uh, of us as, as Christians, that we are called to be faithful, faithful to Jesus, faithful to his word. And this is what his Bible tells us to do. And so if we want to honor God and his holiness, then we have to do that. Number two, the hope is, again, not to bullwhip the person that's in sin and living in the ditch. This is a rescue operation. It's going and pleading with them. It's walking alongside of them to to pull them out of the spiritual chaos and ditch that they are in. The ultimate goal is the redemption of the person. Not just the cold shoulder, I ain't got nothing to do with you. We hate your guts. No. That's the opposite. The op- the, the, what the Bible is teaching us is, man, we want to see this person restored into full membership. The third thing is, and we'll get into more of this next week, is to protect the church. Because here's typically what happens. People within the membership of the church who begin to live contrary to Jesus and his word, they also begin to manipulate, deceive other people to live like that as well. whether it's gossip, causing problems within the church. Sin is a lot more fun done in company. And so we've got to protect the church. What else do we protect? Number four is we protect the church's witness to the world. Isn't this one of the major problem within the American church is this? Is that a lot of people who are not followers of Jesus, they're looking at the church and saying, these people say that they follow Jesus, but if I look at their pattern of life and I look at my pattern of life, they look exactly the same. So the church is just filled with a bunch of hypocrites. You ever heard that? That's because many churches have become unfaithful and they will not practice biblical church discipline to the point of removal from membership. I've seen it taking place. I've seen a church absolutely refuse. Man, this is a grace church. Well, grace doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to do. Grace is the net for when we do fall into wrongness. But it is not overall permission that you get to do whatever you want to do. The world is watching. They're looking. But yet, for some reason, in the last hundred years, there there are churches, there are faithful churches who practice this. We are one of those churches. And it's hard. It's difficult. And yet, it's the Bible. But somewhere along the way, we became more about, man, we do do whatever it takes to get more people here. And the Bible is about 
do whatever it takes to get more people to Jesus. And there is a chasm wider than the Grand Canyon between those two different statements. If we're not, then we're unfaithful. We see this all come together in a parable in Luke chapter 15, right? Maybe you've heard this story. There's a father, and he's got two sons. And one day, one of the the younger son decides, man, I don't want to live in my daddy's house anymore. I want to go live wildly. And the Bible alludes to is that that pretty much meant that he wanted to go get uh, drunk and have many relationships with the ladies. And so you get this picture of a grieving father who allows his son to go. If this is how you, what you want, then go. And the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 15 that the man goes and he ends up squandering all of his money on wild living. And to the point where he was essentially homeless and the only food that he could find was that of the pigs. So it's essentially, as, as we grew up in the country calling it, he ate slop with the pigs. He went from the shelter of his daddy's house, from the protection of his daddy's house, to living the way that he wanted to leave, to live. And yet the father stands at the window waiting for his son, grieving that his son has gone this way. And the Bible says that the young man, he ends up being in the ditch because sometimes you got to get to the lowest of lows. I've been there. Maybe you've been there. Where you didn't know which way was up. You woke up one time and you're like, man, how did I ever get to this place? Where is the hope? Where is the light at the end of the tunnel? And the Bible tells us that this man, imagine living with pigs, eating what they eat. And the Bible says the man came to his senses. And he went back home. And as he started to go back home, it gives this picture of daddy staring at the, the big bay window in the the house and he sees his son coming back and what does the bible tell us that the daddy does that the dad runs out to his kids who has essentially just told him dad i want you to die so i can get my however i want to live but instead of berating him instead of letting him down no the the father says to his servants let us kill the fatted calf let's rejoice let us have a party for my son has come home. And that is the practice that we see within church discipline when it's done biblically and correctly, that when Jesus leads a person to come to their senses in their sin and they come home, guess what happens at the next membership meeting? When that brother or sister walks in, there is tears of joy and rejoicing and the angels in heaven are singing praises to God that there has been one who has come to Jesus. Let it be so. Lastly, let me just say this. Doesn't this paint a huge picture of the seriousness of sin? That little white lie, or no matter what it is, 
that it is serious to God. May we not justify our sin, but may we come to Jesus, the justifier of our sin. Let's pray.